book of Ezra and chapter 4. Ezra chapter 4, and we are going to read verses 1 through 5. Ezra chapter 4, beginning to read at verse 1. Again, please give careful attention as we read God's Word. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. But we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God abides forever. If we were reading a, cha- a children's fiction story, then the book of Ezra might have finished at the end of chapter 3. And it might have finished with the kinds of words that you often have at the end of children's fiction stories, um, tailored towards the circumstance, of course. And it might have said something like this, and they built the temple quickly, and they all lived happily ever after. Sadly, that was not the case. Ezra is not a children's fiction story. One commentator yet asks, shouldn't this have been the outcome though? They built the temple quickly, they were successful, and they all lived happily ever after. Shouldn't that have been the outcome, particularly since the exiles had had 70 years to learn the lesson of their previous errors? And should they not now make speedy progress now that they have tasted the sweet mercies of Almighty God in their return from captivity? End quote. Sadly, that was not the case. The story that now unfolds is one, as we might say, of retreat rather than progress. And so, as we come to these first five verses of Ezra chapter 4, we see that they show that opposition, particularly in the form of discouragement, 
was the reason why the work on building the temple ground to a halt. Um, if you want a vivid image in your mind, it's almost like somebody stamped on the brakes and it comes to this screeching halt. We're going to take, Lord willing, uh, two Sunday evenings to look at this passage. Uh, so we make a beginning uh, this evening. Uh, and we're going to do so under three headings. First of all, an important recurring theme. Secondly, enemy-occupied territory. And then thirdly, a rightly declined offer. So an important recurring theme, enemy-occupied territory, and a rightly declined offer. So first of all, an important recurring theme. Opposition and discouragement is an important recurring theme throughout all of redemptive history for the people of God. It's not that it only is a case here and there, from time to time, sporadically. It is a theme that continues throughout all of redemptive history. And we have a particular example of it here in Ezra chapter 4. The chapter begins with the discouragement that came after the offer of assistance from the Samaritans was declined. From this point onwards, throughout the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, we find opposition. It is a constant theme. Right through the end of the book of Ezra and a greater part into the book of Nehemiah. What does that tell us? It tells us that the kingdom of God is built within enemy-occupied territory, within circumstances of hostility. Not everyone is on board. Not everyone is happy and glad in the way in which the temple is to be rebuilt here. And we see the example then in Ezra 4 of the broader principle, even as our Lord pointed out in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail, but it will be built under circumstances of opposition and hostility. One commentator puts it like this. He says, quote, Satan here lurks behind the scenes, as is his frequent strategy, content to often lie hidden, hoping that the Lord's servants will forget all about him and take out their frustration on God himself instead, end quote. And so here in Ezra 4, we see how the evil one employs these Samaritans they are those who re were resettled in the northern kingdom of Israel with its capital in Samaria. How Satan employs those as his instruments of opposition. We, are, we might say they are his men doing his bidding. Now, they may be somewhat or even totally unaware of that. They do this unwittingly, as we might say. But nevertheless, that's the spiritual reality here. 
Of course, that ought not to surprise us because Satan seeks always to destroy what is good. He's done that from the beginning. His aim, particularly here as elsewhere, is to thwart God's plan, His progression of His plan in redemptive history. He seeks to rob the Lord of His rightful glory, and Satan ultimately portrays himself as king over this creation. Now, of course, we know as the redeemed people of God that Satan is a defeated foe and that his claims to sovereignty, to a kingdom in this world, perhaps to use the language of our own day, uh, those claims are delusional. They're not the reality or truth. God is king, and Satan is a defeated foe. But sadly, some, many in this world, uh, fall prey to the delusional claims of the evil one, and even sometimes Christians themselves have been enamored of what one commentator calls Satan's grand deception, the great deception of this world as a pretended kingdom of the evil one over which he sets himself up as king, and to easily become discouraged, um, even to the point of inactivity, and even to the point of not doing anything, as we find ultimately happens here, as they down tools, as we would say, in discouragement at the opposition, in building the temple. Now, who were these human agents then of the evil one? How did he um, work out this strategy in this particular circumstance? Well, he used these Samaritans from the north in this uh, as his instruments in this great spiritual conflict. Uh, again, we ought not to be surprised by that. Um, Jesus himself warned that unbelievers are the devil's children, he says, John 8, verse 44. And we see again and again throughout the Bible Satan's great skill in manipulating individuals and drawing them in to his great delusion. Did He not do that in the beginning with Eve in the garden in Eden? That's what Paul says, 1 Timothy 2 verse 14. Did He not do that with the son of perdition, Judas, John 13, 27? Was that not true of Elymas the magician who we come across in the book of Acts, Acts 13 verse 10? And so, we ought not to be ignorant of these things, unaware of these dangers. We need to be vigilant, and we need to be on guard. We ignore that reality to our peril, that Satan is a master strategist and is very adept to manipulating men, women, boys, and girls. Against that backdrop, therefore, it is to the great credit of the leaders of Israel by the Lord's strength and grace, Zerubbabel and Jeshua, that they saw this situation from the beginning 
for what it was, as the text tells us, a work of enemies, adversaries, Ezra 4 verse 1. And they were alert to the danger and to the great consequences if they had given in to the temptation to enter into cooperation with these enemies of the people of God. What does that tell us by way of a practical application? Well, such alertness is not just worthy of our observation and our admiration, though it certainly is that, but such alertness is worthy of our emulation, which was just a great word to rhyme, so that's, I couldn't resist using that, but by saying we should follow their example. Here we are talking about an example to follow, clearly, and we should seek by God's grace to be able to do in the various callings that we have. We're not a Zerubbabel civil leader in a theocracy of Israel under the Old Covenant. We're not Jeshua as a high priest and the uh, priestly office of Old Covenant Israel, but in whatever callings the Lord has given each one of us, as He surely has, we too ought to be on our guard and seek not to be deceived. We ought to see things for what they are, even when Satan comes through the human instrumentation of men, women, boys, and girls. For there was real danger here. Now, sure, it was danger lurking. Danger didn't come and run its flag up the pole and said, I'm danger. Here I am. It was very, as we might call it in military terms, it was covert operations, wasn't it? It was trying to be infiltration of the enemy here. But it's to their great credit, uh, by the Lord's help, that these two leaders were aware of this for what it was, not only for their own personal well-being, but for the well-being of the people of God as a whole. And so, by way again of our application to our circumstances, uh, we should always be grateful when the Lord gives to His church such discerning leadership. Uh, here in terms of the Old Covenant, Zerubbabel, Joshua, heads of households in Israel. Here we're thinking more in the structure of the New Covenant Church, in the local church. We should pray and be thankful for when the Lord supplies discerning leadership who are on guard, who are on watch. That's their calling uh, to guard not only themselves. They need to look to themselves, as the Scriptures clearly say, as a responsibility but then to look to the well-being of the flock over which, Paul says, as he talks to the elders at Ephesus, the Lord has made you overseers. Those who watch over the flock as under-shepherds of the great shepherd himself. And so we should be grateful, give thanks to God for such provision in His church. And where that is not um, in any particular congregation, for whatever the providence might be, then that should be an urgent prayer for the church to supply such leadership for many reasons of the other callings of elders, but here the focus is upon this watching, guarding of the flock, being discerning of when enemies would come against the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, particularly in this form of, as we would say, covert infiltration. 
Well, that brings us in the second place to enemy-occupied territory. Enemy-occupied territory. And here we come specifically to the text, verses 1 and 2 and verse 4. News of the temple rebuilding project soon reached those who were living further afield, as we would say. And as the work begins, a delegation arrives in the city of Jerusalem. This delegation, uh, the members of it, are identified here by the author of Ezra as adversaries of Judah and Benjamin, verse 1. They're also described as the people of the land, verse 4. And again, we might uh, compare that with chapter 3, verse 3, that gives us further description of these people. And also in verse 2, they are identified as those who were forcibly resettled in the land during the reign of a previous Assyrian king who was sovereign over this territory in earlier years, uh, Esarhaddon, Ezra 4 verse 2. Um, many of them were from Samaria, but not exclusively. They also would probably have included people from Ashdod, Ammon, Moab, and Edom, the surrounding nations uh, of Israel, but altogether we're regarded as we might uh, call them, um, not in the pejorative sense as we use this word today, but in the biblical sense of foreigners, uh, aliens, as Paul says in the book of uh, Ephesians, to the covenant of, with Israel. These were those who were presently outside um, to uh, that uh, nation which God had established and to whom He'd given uh, His uh, covenant in faithfulness. Um, and despite all that they might say, um, the issue here is they are those compromisers of the one true faith, of their faith in the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, what is this to teach us? Well, of course, as we set this in the context of all of Scripture, we've talked a lot about that today, um, not just picking a text out or a passage out. Uh, we did that in Sunday school. We did that this morning. Here we have an example of it again. As we look at all of Scripture in this subject we're thinking about, then we see that the Old Testament church had a unique identity. It was partly civil and partly use the big term ecclesiastical, meaning churchly. So, church and state were tied together um, in, in such a way you could not separate these for the theocracy of Israel under the Old Covenant. Um, now, when it comes to the New Covenant, um, those civil uh, definitions of the people of God are changed. Um, the civil barriers to being part of the people of God that were established under the, under the Old Covenant, as Paul would say, have been removed even in Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says Ephesians 2.14, Christ has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. You don't have to be an ethnic Jew in the New Covenant to be a true believer. Under the old covenant, you had to be a member of Israel. You were proselytized first, as it were, 
from what other um, nation and ethnicity you may have, Moabite, Edomite, whatever else it might be, because those two things were um, tied together in God's purpose under His old covenant. Um, to be part of the professing people of God was to be one who was of um, Jewish definition, if not by birth, then by conversion. That's how it was. But under the new covenant, as Paul makes clear, that has been uh, abolished. Um, Jew and Gentile by ethnicity are uh, welcomed uh, in the great um, uh, free offer of the gospel. It can be preached to all the nations, and we don't preach a gospel which says you have to become this in civic terms first, in terms of a nationality of this world, an ethnicity of this world, before you can become a believer. And that's why, as John sees in that great vision in the book of Revelation, of glory, of heaven, there are those, a countless multitude of every tribe and nation and kindred and tongue. As we think about that broad picture of the church under old and new covenants, we still need to say, though, there remains a division, not ethnically, um, either within the church or between the church and outside the church, but there is still a division spiritually, ecclesiastically, between those who are in Christ and those who are not. And we see this pictured for us here in the book of Ezra. Um, how is the church to treat unbelievers? Well, they are to love them. They are to seek to care for them in all of their needs, physical and spiritual. But they are to treat them as those who need to be evangelized. You see, that's the difference. They cannot be embraced in terms of in Christ until they truly have been converted and brought into Christ. Um, they cannot be embraced within the church and enjoy its privileges and comforts until they are truly converted and turned to Christ in repentance and faith. Well, then you might ask, and this is the real issue here as it comes up in the book of Ezra in a specific example, um, but broadening the particular here to the principle, then the question comes, well, if there is that real distinction, as there surely is, between believers and unbelievers, in Christ and not in Christ, to what extent may the church cooperate with unbelievers? Are there any circumstances in which the church, the professing church of the Lord Jesus, Christians, true believers, um, can work together with unbelievers. Uh, it's pictured here for us in terms of the old covenant people of God, civilly, ecclesiastically, um, and these foreigners, Samaritans mainly, um, but with some others from other nations around in this delegation. Let's work together, they said. Is that permissible? Well, we work it out this way both then and now. In civil matters, it is possible. And we should seek to work together, even with unbelievers, 
on those things that apply to all people, all places, all times. If you hear that language, you kind of should know what it's referring to, God's moral law on moral issues. Let's try and be very specific in case you think I'm being kind of too abstract. We can work together with unbelievers on such moral issues as abortion, euthanasia, where we seek to oppose things, even as we are praying in our prayers this evening, that are against the sanctity of life. And we do not simply say to someone who does not um, believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, well, I don't agree with you if they actually are agreeing with you. This is wrong, and we should seek to do all that is lawfully possible to resist this. That can be done and should be done. We can stand on platforms together to oppose such things, to say this is against the law of God. But on issues which are of the faith, of what Christianity is, and particularly in terms of what the gospel is, the definition of what the gospel is, or when it comes to those who believe that gospel and are embraced together corporately to bring them into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and acknowledge them as true believers, then as one commentator puts it, quote, unbelief has no basis for any input on those things, end quote. We cannot work together on saying, well, you know, you have your view of Christianity, we'll have ours. Um, so you can have a social gospel, and that's okay to define Christianity that way, and uh, we'll kind of define it biblically and properly this way, and well, that's okay. We both acknowledge each other's legitimate and, and appropriate. We cannot do that. We can agree on certain moral issues, and we, could and sh we can and should, but when it comes to what the things of the faith are, it's not just a case of, you know, we can find some common ground on these things. The church today moves among enemies just as much as ancient Israel did in the time of Ezra. As one common commentator puts it, he says, quote, In the civil sphere, Christians can cooperate with unbelievers on issues common to the civil realm. But in the church, it is entirely different. To balk at the idea of intolerance to syncretism within the church is to doom the church to oblivion, end quote. What the man's saying there, I know some big words and all that, but basically what he's saying is, if, if you kind of find it hard and almost you cannot accept to say, no, there is a distinction here between Christians and non-Christians when it comes to what is the faith, what is the standard and definition of membership in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you balk at that, if you kind of go, ah, I can't accept that, that's too rigid, then at least in the opinion of this commentator, who's not an infallible man, but I think he's an insightful man, he says that is to doom the church to oblivion. In the end, the church will not exist. 
Now we know in God's sovereign purpose, it will incur. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. But from a human perspective, if you adopt that approach, then it is to doom the church to oblivion. Well, then that brings us in the third place to a rightly declined offer, verses 2 and 3, a rightly declined offer. Now, we may come to what we read here in chapter 4, verse 2, as wasn't this something eminently reasonable? Let us build with you. I mean, what was so wrong with that? Um, one commentator puts it like this. He quotes, he says, quote, on any reasonable day, such an offer would seem timely. Uh, they didn't have infinite resources for building, so any help would be welcomed. And uh, surely it came from a, a generous spirit uh, of wanting to be helpful to these people who would come to live in Jerusalem. After all, and you can hear some of the irony I hope I'm getting in my tone here. Um, after all, the sooner the temple was built, the sooner the people of God could worship in the temple, and they could also return to their homes and get to their other responsibilities and callings. So surely, the, what, what wrong could there be in having these extra resources on the project? Again, to use some more up-to-date language of our own day, um, is construction a religious matter? Is it not a matter common to us all, believer and unbeliever? Um, is there really compromise here in accepting the uh, labor, the work of these delegation who came with this offer uh, to work alongside the faithful. I mean, after all, it's only about hauling stone and timber, right? And putting one thing on top of another. I mean, where's the spiritual compromise in that? As one commentator puts it, he says, quote, this could hardly be construed as a threat to Israel's faith, end quote. And he's saying that ironically. He's not supporting that. He's saying that with, with a, a great dose of irony. It, it hardly could be perceived as a threat to the faith. And so the outright rejection of this offer that we read of by um, Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the heads of uh, households uh, appears in our modern time as certainly somewhat shocking. We might even, as some have called it, short-sighted refusing help when they obviously could do with a lot of help on this project. Um, so the question is, as we read verse 3, why did the exiles refuse the help that was offered from the enemies and these foreigners and strangers to Israel? Well, it's likely that there were at least some uh, political motivations in the offer it wasn't all it appeared to be. Um, if we think about it from the perspective of those who lived in the north, the Samaritans and those nations around, then from their perspective, suddenly tens of thousands of people had come back to the city of Jerusalem, and they seemingly had the backing of imperial Persia. 
So they were somebody to be reckoned with. So um, perhaps that was part of why they wanted to form some sort of alliance. Uh, they perceived them as some sort of uh, threat uh, in their presence amongst them. Um, however that may be, and that may well have been part of the motivation, um, I think the heart of it is this. Uh, for Zerubbabel and Jeshua, these were, as we might call them, outsiders, foreigners. One commentator calls them idolatrous Gentiles. Um, they were those who were religiously compromised themselves. Uh, they might claim to worship God, the same God, in the same way, verse 2. They claimed to offer the sacrifices as the law required, but without us getting all the details here, it's clear that Zerubbabel and Jeshua viewed it otherwise. They did not. And again, we're not giving all the details of what specifically, uh, how much they um, did right or wrong or whatever, but it's clear from the text that they were not doing that. And that was obvious to these leaders. And that's the heart uh, of why, as one commentator puts it, I think so powerfully, he says, quote, this ecumenical offer of cooperation was flatly refused, end quote. It's because they were not truly part of the people of God. They were not those who wished to worship God as He had commanded. They said they were, but they were not. Um, now, how do we respond to that? Um, this is perhaps uh, what we call in our day of pluralism, mixing of all different kinds of uh, religions and each accepting the other as valid and legitimate and all that sort of thing. Um, trying to blend those things, that's what we mean by syncretism. Trying to work all those things together and say each is valid and uh, has to be acknowledged. Um, well, of course, that's no new idea. Uh, sometimes we think as we battle that, that it's something very new to us that uh, Christians and the churches um, only had to deal with in our own time and generation. It's not. It's here, many, many thousands of years ago at the time of Ezra. Uh, the Samaritans and their associates claimed to worship the same God as the Jews. Um, and so they insisted here, I mean, it came in the form of an offer, but they were pretty persistent, weren't they? Um, that they should be allowed some sort of joint participation in the work of God, the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. Um, today we hear the same thing. It's not expressed in terms of building a temple. Uh, in Jerusalem, but it's the same idea. It's quite common to hear calls for um, the giving way and the abandonment of the distinctive biblical identifiers of Christianity. Uh, and can't we just be a little more flexible in the Christian church? And can't we find some common ground with the other world religions so we can all just get along? David Wells, a great... Um, commentator on the state of the church, um, 20th, 21st century, uh, has written about it like this, I think, which is very insightful. He says, quote, um, this idea of can't we all just get along and it's legitimate to try and have this pluralism and syncretism 
and just kind of blend it all together and find some common ground. David Wells says this, quote, Had this been the necessary consequence of encountering the multitude of other religions, so he's saying, look, um, just because these other religions exist, um, if, if this is the right way to respond to that, if it's the inevitable consequence that other professing religions exist in the world, we've got to find a way to blend them all together. If that had been the necessary consequence of that reality, Wells says then Moses, Isaiah, Paul, and our Lord Himself would have given up biblical faith long before it became fashionable in our time to do so." End quote. Now, if you know anything of David Wells, he always writes with that heavy sense of an irony and a sarcasm to make his point. He's saying, don't you think if that was the right thing to do, then the prophets, Christ, and His apostles would have done that a long time before it came to today. It's not as if we have suddenly thought, well, now, wait a minute. This is what we ought to do, right? We, ca we can't be um, insisting on what the Bible insists on. I mean, that's unreasonable, isn't it? Because why is it unreasonable? Well, because people in the day say it's unreasonable. Oh, well, okay then, so it's unreasonable. No, it is not unreasonable. And Wells helpfully um, helps us to see um, if that was a right way of thinking, don't you think the prophets, Christ the prophet par excellence, and His apostles, Christ the great apostle Himself, the great sent one, with the great truth of God, the Word of God incarnate, would have done that a long time ago. And of course, the obvious conclusion is they did not because they should not and ought not to do that, and therefore, we ought not to do it either. And yet, there's been such a great shift, hasn't there? Um, particularly in what we call the West, in Western culture, uh, in our own um, time generation, perhaps in the generations of our parents and perhaps even beginning back in our grandparents, where we could put it like this, it has become very difficult if not sometimes we feel impossible um, to talk about biblical Christianity without then drawing the um, allegation from the unbelieving world that we are simply narrow-minded, that uh, we are simply bigots because we won't legitimize each and every other opinion and so-called professed truth. But what does the Bible say? In very clear terms, Acts 4 verse 12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's what the Bible says. Do you think that's saying, you know, you can, you can have all these things and mix them up and have your pluralism of many religions? Do you think that's saying that you can blend all these things together, syncretize them, and that's an appropriate thing to do. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name, Christ's apostles say, because that's what Christ preached, under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's the death hammer to pluralism and syncretism, isn't it? 
on the authority of the Word of God Himself. It's not legitimate. Let us build with you. These delegates did not share the same convictions as the old covenant people of God, nor did they su submit themselves to the authority of Scripture alone as the foundation of all that is true. Their claim to worship God as He'd commanded was deemed a false one by those whom God had appointed to judge those things at this particular time, and therefore cooperation with them in this, what is a religious enterprise. It's not just construction. It's not just moving stones and wood and all of those things. It is a religious, it is a spiritual enterprise, building the temple of God to worship God as He has commanded, and therefore to cooperate with unbelievers on this would have been a fatal mistake. And as it was for them, so it is for us, brethren. So as we conclude, what is uh, the lesson from this first part of Ezra 4, 1 through 5? Well, I think the author here is, we might say, eager, concerned, zealous for his original readers and all subsequent readers of the Word of God to learn that danger lurks even in the guise of a genuine offer of help. That's what we have here. There are such things as wolves in sheep's clothing, and we are foolish, and we are um, naive if we think otherwise. The Word of God warns us against such. The enemy himself is described as an angel of light, can appear something very different to what he really is, plotting mischief creating mayhem unless he is properly and forthrightly opposed together with all those he uses as his instruments. As we saw here behind these men was the archenemy of God, his Christ and his church, Satan himself. His ill will towards God is um, unquestionable. His ill will towards all things that pertain to the establishing and advancing of, king, of God's kingdom is obvious and clear. It's evident, as we would say. And that's why the people of God at this time, led by faithful leaders, as we would say, will have no truck with this cooperative venture. And they were right to do so, a rightly declined offer. Why? Because to use Paul's language, ultimately, these delegates were, as he calls them in the book of Philippians, as we've been thinking from time to time in the prayer meeting when we look at that book, they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Enemies of the cross of Christ. That's what they're labeled at the very beginning. And to set it in the light of all of Scripture, expanding their definition of enemies. Ultimately, they're enemies of the cross of Christ and therefore to be resisted by God's strength and help with unrelenting zeal. And so is His church to do today. Even when things appear to be one thing, a genuine offer of help, well, let, let's work together on this. 
when it is clear that they are not of the faith, that they will not submit to the authority of the Scriptures, when they will not, in the worship of God, for instance, worship according to the way that God has commanded, when there's an insistence on there's many ways to God, you have yours and we have ours, then we see these people, yes, with loving eyes, seeking to evangelize them, praying that God would convert them and bring them truly into His kingdom. But until such time, brethren, they are enemies of the cross of Christ, and they are to be resisted, even with the zeal that God gives us for His glory and the true establishment of His kingdom. May God so help us. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would indeed help us to be vigilant and to be warned by your word, even by the historical event here in the time of the book of Ezra. Lord, sometimes we read of these things and we simply think they're a long time ago and far, far away. But embedded within the particulars of time and space are those things, O Lord, which are constantly fighting and militant against You, Your Christ, Your gospel, and Your church. And so we pray that You would help us to be warned, help us to be on guard, and help us to have that holy zeal, even to guard the truth and to resist the compromise, even when it's clamor of this world, even when it's insistence of this world, even when falsely accused, O Lord, that we are simply being intolerant. Grant us, Lord, not to be intolerant on our beliefs, convictions, if they are simply ours, as fallible men and women and boys and girls, but as we stand upon the Holy Word of God, we pray that You would help us to do so yet lovingly of the enemies desiring their best in their being brought to Christ, but until that time to be suitably and appropriately um, warned against them and to, to know that in matters of the church, in matters of the faith, there is no common ground between the Christian and the unbeliever. And so we pray that you'd grant us wisdom even as we seek, O oh Lord, to perhaps work in cooperation in other areas of moral uh, um, matters in civil life, uh, grant us to work appropriately together on those things where it can be done, but grant us clarity so that we do not compromise, even with regard to the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.